0: On Tuesday night, candidates across 435 House races, 35 Senate contests, 36 gubernatorial elections, and thousands of other state and local campaigns all looked on anxiously as results started to trickle in for the 2022 midterm elections. But days later, some are still waiting for those official results, while others are looking around in surprise and wondering, how did we get here? I'm Gustavo Ariano. You're listening to The Times, essential news from the LA Times. It's Friday, November 11th, 2022. Today, we try to make sense of the midterms. Upsets, favorites, what happened and didn't, and what this election says about 2024. Joining me to talk about Tuesday's election results are my LA Times colleagues and 2022 midterm maestras. Julia Wick covered the Los Angeles mayoral election and Seema Mehta covers national politics. Julia, Sima, welcome to Times. Thanks for having me on.
1: Thanks for having both of us on.
0: What an election week. So Seema, the big story from election night was that Democrats didn't do as poorly as was expected. All we heard through the midterms was talk about a red wave that was just going to take over not just the Capitol, but all across the United States, but didn't quite play out like that. Republicans are expected to control the House, but by a smaller margin than they thought. And the U.S. Senate, it's still up for grabs. So what happened?
2: I mean, the Democrats definitely had a much better night than people were expecting. And Republicans at one point, you know, we talking about you know, taking over the House by like, you know, maybe even like 60 seats. And I mean, that's clearly not happening. It's going to be a much smaller margin. I mean, we don't know all the details, but I mean, some of the things that you know, we're talking about are First of all, um, the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade was obviously a huge thing. And Democrats were hopeful that that would motivate young voters, voters of color, women, you know, potentially Republican women. So that's one of the things we're really going to dig into once we know more about voter turnout, who ended up voting. Then also, in some cases, it was candidate selection. I mean, there were some candidates who, for example, in Pennsylvania, you know, John Fetterman versus Dr. Oz. Dr. Oz, he just didn't... um, sort of fit the, the voters in the Pennsylvania. And Fetterman, you know, I mean, he had a stroke during the campaign. You know, obviously that was a major issue, but he did connect with voters in a way that obviously Dr. Oz didn't. So in some cases, it was candidate selection. In some cases, you know, President Trump weighed in in some of these races and the president is flirting with a, another presidential run. And I think that put it back in voters' minds. I mean, this is the first election in years where he either... He wasn't an officer. He wasn't at the top of the ticket. And so there was a question about how much he would influence things. But I think, you know, how much he got involved in the campaigns in recent days that also refocused some Democratic voters.
0: So you mentioned all these stumbles that the Republicans had, but then why were Republicans predicted to do so well in these midterms?
2: So the party in power in the White House usually almost always loses seats in the House in the first midterm during its tenure. There's very few exceptions. The one I can think of most recently was after 9-11. And then also, I mean, You know, while the abortion issue, the Supreme Court ruling was obviously major development this year. There's also, you know, gas prices have been really high, groceries have cost a lot. I mean, inflation has really impacted voters in a way that when I was out talking to voters, you know, in all different parts of the state, it was something you heard constantly from Democrats and Republicans. You know, people tend to blame the party in power. So that was something that Democrats were worried about in terms of Biden. And you could see that in his approval ratings, which, you know, I think they're basically right now about, they've clicked up a little but still like 40, 41. I mean, they're still pretty low. Those three factors were really the key reasons that people thought Republicans would do better than they did or they appear to have done so far. What were some of the early indicators on election night
0: that it wasn't going to turn into that big red wave so many people were expecting?
2: At one point, there was some speculation that the Republicans might win so many House seats on the East Coast that they might be able to call control of the House that early. And then that clearly didn't happen. And then we saw some of the governor's races, you know, in New York, people were wondering if Kathy Hochul would be successful or if the Republican would win. And New York's a pretty blue state statewide. I mean, obviously, it varies across, you know, whether you're talking about New York City or upstate. The fact that Democrats were worried about that seat was another indicator that people thought Republicans were having a good night. Democratic governors ended up you know, doing pretty well. And then you know, we, I talked a little bit about Fetterman earlier, but you know that race was called relatively early. I mean, you know, we're not still waiting around on that like we are some of the other races. And so when those candidates started to do well, then it sort of started to become clear that Republicans were not going to sort of rule the board or run the table. But, you know, we're still waiting on the results in a number of races. So we don't know the full picture yet.
0: And Julia, looking at the local level, like one of the big contests in Los Angeles was for the mayor's race between Rick Caruso and Karen Bass. It got a lot of attention nationally, actually. Remind us of who they are and why were so many people tuning in?
1: Absolutely. So this race was really interesting for a number of reasons. One, L.A. is an inherently interesting place. You know, as California goes, so goes the nation. (laughs) It's seen as a bellwether. But we also had two candidates who were really symbolically different. Karen Bass is a Black woman, a longtime politician, um, served in the State Assembly, has been in Congress. Her background is in community activism, is really seen as a coalition builder. And Rick Caruso, who is a white real estate developer, billionaire, who really was running on kind of a change LA platform, clean up LA, and He has served on a number of city commissions. He was president of the police commission. So he has a pretty deep background at L.A. City Hall, but really was running as an outsider. And he, the other kind of biggest thing to note is that he's a former Republican. And so L.A. is a deep blue city. And on one side, we had a lifelong Democrat elected official. And on the other side, we had a former Republican businessman. And so these are kind of really stark contrasts.
0: And not only that, Caruso spent, what, over $100 million of his own money to be a factor in the race.
1: Exactly. And the spending in this race has been historic on a number of fronts, not just, you know, that the numbers are so kind of bonkers and so beyond what Bass could spend by such a magnitude, but also in terms of his field campaign, he's put upwards of $13 million into his field campaign. No one in a local L.A. race has done anything like that. They have had hundreds of door knockers out in parts of the city and really targeting voters who don't always vote in city elections, particularly Latino and Asian voters. And so kind of the big gamble for Caruso, this multimillion dollar gamble, is whether he can actually get those voters to show up and mark their ballots for him. And them showing up, I think, will be one of the key things that determines whether or not he does win.
0: Right now, who's in the lead, Bass or Caruso?
1: So Caruso has a slight lead right now, but the thing to make very clear about LA vote counting is since the overwhelming shift to people using vote by mail, we really don't have results yet. The results could still swing pretty wildly. So the first batch of results since very late on election day or technically early Wednesday morning are going to be coming out today. So we'll have a much better sense of where things stand after that. What about... Other
0: historic or surprising results from these midterms, any key wins that we should be recognizing, whether on a national level, local level, just anything that really caught your attention?
2: I mean, there was actually both on the national level and in California, and then also for both parties. We saw the first female governor elected in Massachusetts. She's also the first openly gay woman who was elected there as Governor Maura Healey. We saw Sarah Huckabee Sanders elected as governor of Arkansas. She's the daughter of former Governor Mike Huckabee, former presidential candidate, and um, she's the first female governor of the state. And then we saw the first black governor elected in Maryland, um, Westmore. And then uh, uh, Gen Z is starting to have an impact on politics. <laughs> we saw the first congressman elected uh, from that generation, from Florida. It's Maxwell Frost. And in California, Alex Padilla was the first Latino senator elected in California. He was appointed to fill Kamala Harris's term when she was elected vice president. But he now is officially elected. So they broke barriers for Latino voters here. And, you know, Latino voters here and Latino community organizations have long been calling for more representation of... Of Latinos in California politics um, you know, because they're such a huge part of this population of the state, and I think roughly 40%. And so when he was appointed, that was obviously a big deal. But for him to be elected, the first Latino senator from California is being celebrated in a lot of communities.
0: Julia, any elections got your attention?
1: One race that's been really interesting is the race for Los Angeles City Controller, which is a seat that most people don't even know what the controller does. It's not something that normally garners attention. But this race has gotten a huge amount of attention, and that's largely thanks, completely thanks to one candidate, Kenneth Mejia, an activist and certified public accountant who just turned 32. He declared victory election night over longtime LA politician Paul Koretz. And Paul Koretz conceded Wednesday that he probably has lost the race. And this wasn't a surprise because Mejia had also finished the primary with a massive margin over Koretz. But it's still a real rebuke to the L.A. establishment to not have Carats finish better in this race and really speaks to the strength of Mejia's grassroots movement.
0: Coming up after the break, the long wait for the final results and the ballot initiatives that cross the finish line. So, Seema, not... All the races from Tuesday's midterm elections have been called. And we're probably still in this for a few long days, maybe even weeks. So what other key contests should we continue to pay attention to?
2: I mean, the ones that I've been most focused on are California congressional contests because we had redistricting last year. Every state does it. After the census, every 10 years, all the congressional maps are redrawn. And you know there's a lot of jockeying for both parties to sort of try to you know, have the maps drawn in their favor from various communities to try to you know stay together or to you know, communities of interest, that kind of thing. So these are the first elections since we have these new districts. And you know, in California, once the maps came out, Democrats are pretty optimistic about flipping some Republican seats. Mike Garcia, in North LA County, David Valdeo in the Central Valley, Michelle steel in Orange County as the year progressed, it looked like they got increasingly nervous about their ability to take those seats, and then they started getting nervous about protecting their own incumbents, Katie Porter in Orange County, who's an enormous fundraiser, Mike Levin in a, in a district that straddles Orange County and San Diego County, and so a couple of weeks before the election, Julia Brownlee, who is in a district that Biden won by twenty points, she started sending out alarm bells, you know, to leadership to get more money and to get more attention on her race because she started getting nervous about her prospects and her race still hasn't been called, so we're still waiting on several key California congressional races that are really going to help determine. You of the balance of power in
0: Congress. Yeah. In Orange County, you mentioned Michelle Steele and also Young Kim. There were two of the first Korean American women elected to Congress, and they're both Republicans and their opponents were also Asians. So there was a lot of attention nationally paid about the power of the Asian American vote. And right now, it seems both Young Kim and Michelle Steele, they're going to come out ahead.
2: Right. Michelle Steele's race was with uh, Jay Chen, who's a former naval officer, intelligence officer. And that race got really, really nasty. And it it got national attention. I mean, she basically was calling him a communist sympathizer. He was saying that's insane because, you know, his grandmother fled communist China to Taiwan. And, you know, he served in the military. He had like, you know, top secret clearance. So that, that race just got really dirty.
0: The other race in Los Angeles that got national attention was for the sheriff of L.A. County. And right now, challenger Robert Luna has a big lead over the incumbent, Alex Villanueva. We've done episodes about this race is important recently, but we still don't know what's going to be the result on that for a while either. It used to not be like
2: that, Seema, all this waiting around. So why do election results now take so long? Well, um, it's a number of reasons. And it also depends on uh, which state you're talking about. But in California, for example, since the pandemic, every voter here gets a mail ballot. So we are overwhelmingly voting by mail as opposed to going to your polling station on election day. Those mail ballots have a week to get to the county elections officials offices. So in a tight race where you don't know what the universe is of the ballots that are out there, it could take a long time to count. In some places, you know, you can't start counting those mail ballots until after Election Day. You know, In other places, you can start counting them a little bit earlier or start verifying them at least a little bit earlier. And then also, we've also really changed the way we vote. Back in the day, Republicans used to be far more likely to vote early, while Democrats were much more likely to vote on Election Day. That got turned upside down during President Trump's administration because you know he created this real deep skepticism of uh, mail ballots. And so now Democrats are more likely to use mail ballots, while Republicans are more likely to vote on Election Day.
0: Julia, you've also written about why election results take so long.
1: Yeah, I would add two things. Even if we never had full election results on election night, pre-pandemic with much more reliance on in-person voting, I think we had a much clearer picture. And since the shift to overwhelming vote-by-mail use, at least in California, is still relatively new, I feel like it's going to just take a few cycles for people to psychologically get used Mm. to the kind of new normal around election night versus election season. And the other thing is the reason vote-by-mail ballots take so much longer to process, which isn't the actual voting page is the same tabulation time for in-person or vote-by-mail. But every vote-by-mail ballot has to be signed by the voter. And election officials then have to verify each of those signatures and make sure, you know, that all is good with that ballot. And the important thing to know is that it's not a bug in the system that it's taking so long. It's actually sort of a feature of the democratic process working.
2: Um, but I do think, you know, that the media in part is responsible for creating this environment where people expect results Tuesday night. And when we see fluctuations, for example, one person is up Tuesday and then Wednesday another person is up and, you know, the vote count fluctuates. You know, that has led to some skepticism that, you know, I think some people have taken advantage of to, you know, undermine you know elections. I do think we both journalists, government officials, you really need to emphasize why it takes so long to count ballots, why the numbers change. It's not like, you know, somebody secretly discovered a bag of 400 ballots like behind like the trash can or anything. This is happening for a reason because of the processes we have in place.
0: Yeah, we still don't know the final turnout until all the ballots are counted, which who knows how long that's going to last. But there were a few major issues that dominated the headlines and The ballot box as well. Seema, you mentioned some of them already, abortion, but also inflation, the economy, crime. And we've talked on this podcast recently about how Democrats put so much weight this year behind the outrage over abortion while the Republicans really pushed on the economy. How
2: well did those strategies work for both of the parties? there were some early indications that young people really were turning out more than they usually do in midterms. I mean, I think I saw in Michigan, you know, students waiting in line for two hours to vote. Yeah. I think Orange County is another great example of this, where once we know, you know, how some of these congressional races turned out to see, you know, did women turn out in greater numbers or did women you know, possibly cross over to vote for some Democratic candidates because of this issue? So I think there are early indicators that, you know, the Democrats focusing on abortion did ultimately help them. But we I, I think it's too soon to tell.
0: And Julia, here in California, reproductive rights were actually on the
1: ballot. Yes, they were. Uh, Proposition one, which overwhelmingly passed, uh, enshrines abortion rights in the California state constitution. And I think it really speaks to how fundamental abortion rights are viewed in California and that it's somewhat of a crossover issue or at least bleeds across party lines somewhat in California.
0: And... Beyond abortion, Seema, ballot initiatives in other states pretty much fell into two other camps, voting and drugs. How did those issues play out nationally?
2: We saw different results in different states, obviously, for marijuana. Missouri voted in favor. Maryland voted in favor. Arkansas opposed. In Colorado, there was uh, magic mushrooms on the ballot. Wow. Voting issues were on the ballot in a couple of states across the country. Connecticut voted to, uh, to expand early voting. Michigan expanded voting access. Um, including early voting also. uh, But in Arizona, we saw voters crack down and vote for stricter ID laws. So we saw different results in different parts of the country, depending on the political tilt of the states.
0: And speaking of tilt, Julia, one of the big issues in Los Angeles was whether the progressive left might make uh, further inroads into the LA City Council. And you mentioned Kenneth Mejia earlier for city controller. What other races on the city council or even in the board of supervisors had that left versus liberal tilt?
1: Great question. Definitely Council District 13, where Mitch O'Farrell, a two-term incumbent, and that's a district that includes, you know, Hollywood, parts of Hinguck Park, et cetera, was facing off against Hugo Soto Martinez, who was a longtime hotel worker organizer, DSA-backed candidate, pretty closely aligned with uh, Councilmember Nithya Raman, who unseated an incumbent in 2020. And so that race very much kind of bridged that divide. And Soto Martinez is currently slightly up over O'Farrell, but again, take every election result right now with a grain of salt. Uh-huh. And then in CD11, which is Councilmember Mike Bonin's district, who was not running for re-election, and that's a coastal district that includes Venice, the Palisades, et cetera, Tracy Park uh, was running against Aaron Darling. And Tracy Park was the much more conservative, of both Democrats, but the more conservative of those two candidates. And Aaron Darling was much further to the left. And Park is currently up by about 10 points. But again, take all results right now with a grain of salt.
0: Are we still seeing repercussions from the leaked audio in these L.A. elections?
1: I think absolutely. You know, I've spent a lot of time talking to voters in the past week. And it was something that a lot of people brought up as something that mattered to them. People felt really disgusted by that tape and disgusted by the way elected officials were speaking. I don't think we'll have a real sense of how it actually affected the elections until we have more results. But, you know, one thing that a lot of people have been talking about is whether the fallout surrounding the leak might help push a progressive shift on the city council, particularly given people's frustration with the establishment and That progressive momentum was definitely already happening in the city prior to the leak, but uh, it could be a factor that helps push it forward.
0: After the break, fraud, security, and former President Trump. Seema, another big thing going into Tuesday's election was all the concerns about voting machine glitches and so-called election integrity—did those fears materialize?
2: In terms of election integrity, we really haven't seen a ton of people questioning. You know, obviously there were some problems in Arizona, for example. But by and large, when you look at the polarization, when you know you looked at the lead-up to this, you know, th- there was a lot of questions about whether people would accept the results um, if they didn't go their way. There are a number of candidates who wouldn't say whether they would accept the results. You know, obviously this country is very polarized. You know, we've seen attacks on politicians of both parties, and so. But so far, it looks like. For the large part, uh, people are so accepting the results, including some election tonight or some, such as uh, Tudor Dixon in Michigan, who lost to Gretchen Whitmer. But I don't know, like, long-term, I don't know what that means in terms of the polarization in this country. We have seen attacks on politicians of both parties. Um, we've also seen a number of... Uh, Attacks that were stopped or that didn't make it all the way. Um, you know, we know people on January sixth were looking for politicians uh, for elected leaders from both parties. Um, we obviously know what happened to Paul Pelosi, which is horrible. We know what happened to Steve Scalise, which is horrible. And I guess my question is, you know, at some point, is somebody going to be successful? And, and you know, is that is that the moment where people you know start to you know th- realize that you know something is very wrong here when you know you have attacks on politicians? Or are we so broken that you know the polarization just continues? I just I don't know how to fix it at this point.
0: Yeah. And speaking of Trump, he already said that he has a major announcement on November 15, which most people expect him to say he's going to run for president again in 2024. What sort of shadow did he cast on this election and what lessons can we take away from that?
2: He, I think he's going to cast a shadow in every election, that you know, so long as he's, you know, involved in the political process in this country because of, you know, what, what's happened in the last several years. He was out and about, you know, rallying up his base. I mean, he was in Ohio, I think, Monday night and, you know, J.D. Vance won the Senate race there. So he had some successes, but then, you know, he also did had some failures, you know, Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania. And in Georgia, the Senate race is heading to a runoff. So he, uh, I mean, he clearly still appeals to a part of the base, but then also he made a sort of snarky comment about Florida Governor DeSantis Monday night. And that actually kind of irritated some conservatives who are Trump fans, but who did not like to see him doing that because DeSantis is also considering a run for president. And uh, the two of them, would it would be quite the race if they run against each other. I found that interesting that some Republicans, conservative commentators, uh, voters were, were were kind of turned off by that because that was what President Trump was known for. I mean, you know, 2016 when he had little Marco and you know all his nicknames for people and Lyme Ted, and, and so seeing Republicans' reaction to the former president criticizing the Florida governor struck me as you know m- maybe a moment that we look back upon because it's it's different than what we've seen previously.
0: Yeah, we'll see what happens in 2024. Finally, for the two of you, these midterms basically started with political violence, the January 6th insurrection, and ended with political violence in the form of the attack on House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband two weeks ago. And President Biden came out after both of them to talk about the risks that democracy is underneath right now. So I'm curious for both of you, you've been covering these elections for months now. What do you think about the state of democracy? Or what are people telling you as you interviewed them?
2: Some of the things we just talked about about how you know they largely have not so far been people questioning the integrity of the election that kind of thing like, that's good but this is one small moment when you look at the polarization of this country when you look at you know polls about you know what do people believe about institutions and you know whether the twenty twenty election was rightly called it shows how divided this country is and how you know there are two groups of people with very very different views and so long term I worry because you know I mean, we've seen attacks on on politicians in both parties. And oftentimes law enforcement stops these attacks. But, you know, what happens when one of these is even more successful? I mean, obviously what happened to Paul Pelosi is horrible. But I wonder what happens if somebody is actually successful one of these days? And I just don't know how, how to fix the polarization that's led us to this point where we're even talking about this.
0: Julie, on the other hand, your polarization that you cover mostly is Democrat versus Democrat in terms of liberal versus progressives. What are you feeling from the folks that you're talking to about what they think about American democracy?
1: You know, it's interesting. My perspective as a local reporter is so different from Cimas as a national reporter. I mean, obviously, I think people are still really worried about those broader national trends because they're scary and really worried about the growth of political violence. But L.A. is by and large pretty insulated from that stuff. You know, we're not seeing elect any kind of large-scale election deniers in LA. We're not seeing attacks on the integrity of the ballot. These are things that if they're happening at all, they're happening in a really fringe, fringe way here.
0: And as Los Angeles goes, hopefully so might the rest of the United States. Amen. Julia, Sima, thank you so much for this conversation.
1: Thanks for having us on. Thank you for having us.
0: And that's it for this episode of The Times. Essential news from the LA Times. David Toledo and Kasha Brasalian were the jefas in this episode, Mario Diaz mixed and mastered it, and Hiba El-Urbani edited it. Our show's produced by Shannon Lind, Denise Guerra, Kasha Brasalian, David Toledo, and Ashley Brown. Our editorial assistants are Roberto Reyes and Nicholas Perez. Our engineers are Mario Diaz, Mark Nieto, and Mike Heflin. Our editor is Kinsey Morland. Our executive producers are Hasmin Aguilera, Shani Hilton, and Hiba El-Urbani. And our theme music is by Andrew Eatman. I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back Monday with all the news in this matter. Gracias.